Amen. Well, it's good to be here today. And today we are traveling from Berea to Athens, uh, the birthplace of the Olympics. Uh, we've been over the last few weeks in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 17 today. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, but we went from uh, Philippi in the fall uh, to Thessalonica a few weeks ago, then to Berea, uh, and then uh, now to Athens today. So we're taking a grand tour of modern-day Greece. Uh, and here we are at the southern tip of Greece, Athens, the world-famous city, uh, home of the modern Olympics. Uh, I've said many times before, uh, one of my dreams in life that will go uh, unrealized uh, to be in the Olympics. Uh, and then uh, not just uh, the birthplace of the Olympics, but also home uh, to world-class architecture uh, that's been uh, modeled and remodeled over and over again. The Acropolis, uh, which is home to the Parthenon on top of that big hill. I think we've got an image uh, of that. Uh, there you see kind of the famous uh, photo from Athens. And, and there was a famous leader uh, in the 400 BC era uh, named Pericles that actually commissioned this and had all this built. And so that was the heyday of Athens and Greek culture was around 400 BC. And so today uh, we're looking at a passage uh, that occurred in 1 AD, so in the first century AD, so about 450 to 500 years after uh, the Acropolis was built. Uh, it's still, uh, even in the first century, uh, a centerpiece for art and education, for philosophy. Uh, it's a melting pot of cultures, and, and everyone wanted to come there to learn. And so we're going to, that, that's the setting, uh, that this, this centerpiece of, of art and culture is the backdrop in which Paul, the apostle, is sharing the gospel. And so let's see uh, what happens in Acts chapter 17. We're going to split our passage into two different groups today. So we'll begin in verse 16 and read to 21 first, and then we'll catch the rest of the chapter uh, in a moment. <clears throat> it says this, now while Paul was waiting for them, uh, he's waiting for Paul and Silas, by the way, or excuse me, Timothy and Silas. Uh, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who had lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So as Paul makes his way from Berea down to Athens, uh, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, he makes it clear that, that Paul in this section is, is, has one intent, one purpose, and that is to proclaim Jesus and his resurrection. 
with everyone and anyone who can hear. Uh, He does that a little bit in the synagogue with the Jews, and that usually happens like Friday night and Saturday, but then in the marketplace, which is every day, all the time, everywhere. Just like us, uh, we attend worship uh, at a given time, and then we're out in the marketplace. That's a school, that's at the grocery store, that's at our workplace, that's in our neighborhoods and our communities. And so he's going in the, the center of activity, we might say the third space today, right? Uh, home and work or school is our one and two spaces. The third space, whatever that is, that place you go next. Starbucks uh, for many years wanted to be that third place where everybody went when they weren't at home, school, or work. And so that's where Paul is. He's in the marketplace, in the, in the community, telling everyone who will listen uh, about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, here's the problem uh, with the marketplace. Here's the problem with the city of Athens that is quickly mentioned uh, here in the book of Acts, that it is filled with idols. Uh, One of the, we might say, the core values uh, of Athens is idolatry. That's one of their core values. Uh, Luke says here, the city was full of idols, That doesn't just mean like, oh, hey, uh, we're kind of interested. No, the word actually means to be swamped with idols, like overrun, flooded with idols. One famous philosopher said, it's easier to find a God in Athens than it is a man. That's how idolatrous the people are. And so if Athens had a set of core values, that would be number one, idolatry. The the second core value would be their desire for education. They, They put a high premium on philosophy and education. So they've got idols uh, highlighted by Olympus and Zeus and all the Greek gods. That's their big core value. Then they love to learn and be educated. And we even see here they like to talk all the time about ideas and philosophy. Education was a high priority for them. And and then the third idea that would be maybe their core value is a, a thirst for new, a thirst for new things. They always wanted to come up with something new. They wanted to listen to new ideas. And so this is the sort of the cultural setting of ancient Greece, uh, not a lot different from modern-day suburban Houston. Lots of things that distract us from the one true God. They're probably not little statues, but they're probably hanging out in here. High emphasis on education. Those of you that go to Friendswood High School, you know, according to your principal, it's the number one high school in the state and beyond. You, you know that. Uh, but that's not true just of Friendswood, but Pearland, Clear Creek, I stay. We, we have strong school system, high priority education, going off to college, and all those things. And then we love to be a part of new things. That's why Apple and Samsung create a new phone every year. That's why technology is thrown in front of us and we want the latest and greatest of whatever it is. We want things that are new. And so though 
the centuries have passed, uh, the issues remain the same culturally. And so here's where Paul has stepped into this moment. And he looks around and he sees all these idols. He, see this, he sees this kind of strange thirst for education and philosophy and knowledge and, and, a, and a desire, an insatiable desire to have everything new. And that's the city that he steps into. And as he does that, the Spirit of God provokes him. Like something within him demands that he speak. Demands that he speak. He's distressed at what he sees. He's concerned over what he sees. And so he has to say something. Imagine that you and I see someone who is inundated, drowning, flooded with, overwhelmed with something. Our natural tendency is to step in and try to help. And that's what's going on here. Paul is compelled to help. And so the question you and I have to ask as we think about Paul in Athens and us in suburban Houston is, does the idolatry and the despair of our own communities move us to speak about Jesus? Does it move us to speak about Jesus? Does the despair and the, the constant going after things that don't last, does it move us? provoke us, distress us so that we speak about Jesus. Now, let me be very clear. Paul didn't walk into Athens and all these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and, and these folks in the marketplace buying their bread. He didn't curse the darkness. He didn't fuss at them. He didn't tell them they're all going to hell. Well, maybe he did, but probably in a gracious and kind way. But, but it wasn't a curse in, cursing the darkness kind of mentality. It wasn't this high and mighty, like I'm better than you. No, it was a compassion and a heartache for these people who are lost and directionless. And so what does he actually say? He says the one thing that he knows will create eternal change. He speaks to the Jews in the synagogue. He speaks to the devout people that are listening. He speaks to these philosophers and the random folks in the, in the neighborhood about one thing, Jesus and his resurrection. The truth and the reality of who Jesus is and his power to conquer sin and death. That's the topic of Paul's conversation over and over and over again, proclaiming Jesus to anyone and everyone who would listen. And, and as a result of that, these two groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, these two kind of philosophical groups, they, they begin to pay attention. It, it's like you and I, when we walk past a group of people talking about something, and, and, and it catches your ear and, and you have an opinion about whatever's being discussed. You have an idea. You have a truth that you want to share. And, and maybe they're agreeing with what you believe and so you want to affirm them. Or maybe they're disagreeing with what you believe and so you want to set them straight. It could be on anything. Like your favorite sports teams. Maybe you're discussing the, the playoff games yesterday or what will happen today in the NFL. Maybe it's a pop culture reference. Maybe politics, what I would encourage you to avoid at all costs, but, but maybe. 
Or even like big, giant, meaning of life kind of stuff like how long will Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey make it? Like big things that you might have an opinion on. And and it catches your ear and so you want to pay attention and listen and, and engage in the conversation. That's the Stoics and the Epicureans. They hear Paul talking, and as they come by and they hear him kind of over and over again, they're like, hey, what what is this guy saying? Well, some of them, because they're highly educated, they call him a babbler, which the root word for that is actually someone who's a seed picker, a a scavenger, like a crazy person who just comes along and and doesn't have a home and, and just has to pick up the seeds afterwards and just rambles on about nothing important. But there are some others who thought he was a holy man. Like, that's the great thing about being a follower of Christ. Some people think you're holy and righteous, and other people think you're crazy as a loon. Hey, what a great deal that is. Um, And so that's what they say. Some some think he's a holy man uh, speaking about a foreign god, right? Because little g gods uh, were prevalent then, like everywhere. So they, oh, maybe this is a god we haven't heard of. So let's pay attention to him. And so what do they do? They don't understand this strange message that he's speaking about because they had never heard, they had never heard the true story of the life of Jesus Christ. That's the setting here. These men hadn't heard the real account of the life of Jesus Christ. And so they're intrigued. Some think he's just wild and crazy. And others like, hey, let's, he's teaching something new. So let's listen. Remember a core value of the community. Let's listen. Let's pay attention. No different than some people in your world, in your marketplace. They've never heard the real account of Jesus Christ. They might know bits and pieces. They might have some facts They might know part of the story. They may have some strange belief on what actually happened to Jesus on the cross. They may not believe in in death and resurrection at all. They, They could have some other idea. But what's true of the Athenians is also true of Houstonians. That some have never really heard the life of Jesus Christ. That he lived perfectly the way you and I couldn't live. And he died on the cross Uh, the cross of Calvary, to shed his blood so he would forgive sin. And then he resurrected three days later, conquering sin and death so that you and I could conquer sin and death. These folks had never heard that full story. And so what do they do? They take Paul up to the Areopagus. And and Areopagus is just kind of outside. Uh, You'll see it here. Uh, That's where it is. You see the the Acropolis in the distance. Uh, This is where it is. It was actually a court of law. And you may have heard uh, a different phrase for this space. Um, It's the Areopagus, but in modern times, you'll often hear the phrase Mars Hill. It's the same spot. (laughs) Mars Hill and Areopagus are the same. It's the hill of Ares, the god of Ares. Right? And so that's uh, the space where they took him. It was a court of law. And so they're having a discussion up there on, on what would happen. So let's find out how the discussion goes. Look with me at verse 22 of chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Don't ever believe God doesn't have a sense of humor. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward him, they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given, assur has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, Dionysius of an Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so Paul uh, gets taken up to the hill. Some debate on was this a, a sermon or a defense plea, uh, since there was a court of law, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but as they make their way up, he passes uh, this inscription, this altar, to an unknown God. Uh, the ancient Greeks were a lot like 21st century culture. They didn't want to offend anyone. And so what they did was, in case they missed a god, little g-god, they put this altar up and said to an unknown god. That way they wouldn't offend any gods that they didn't know about. Just like we sometimes do everything we possibly can so we don't offend anyone and thereby offend everyone. And so that's what he walks by on the way up the hill. And so he points out the very thing that they use to help in his declaration about the God of the universe. He, he takes something in their own culture, in their own world, in their own mindset, and he uses it to bridge the gap to launch into this sermon uh, about who God really is and who the person of Jesus is. And so he begins very abruptly as he declares they are religious people 
But he makes the first great declaration that God, the God, created the universe and all things within it. God created everything, and oh, by the way, he doesn't live here. He doesn't live on your little mountain in your pretty building. He doesn't live in these other places you've created. He has created heaven and earth and therefore is not confined to these dwelling places built by men. Stephen, the martyr from earlier in the book of Acts, said the very same thing in his defense as he was being martyred. And so it's as if Paul is saying, guys, you have to be crazy. You got to be a babbler. You got to be a crazy person to believe that the one who made everything actually lives in something you built. That doesn't make any sense. The God of the universe would live in something you made. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. And, and on top of that, not only did God make everything, create everything, but God, this God of the universe, this unknown God that you don't know who he is, I know who he is, he sustains all things as well. He didn't just create everything, he sustains all things. And if he created all things, it's his responsibility, it's his privilege, it's his power that actually keeps things going. It's not a God who created everything and said, have fun, and walked away. And somehow you have to beg him to come back. No, he sustains everything. Why would he need creation somehow to manage what he's created? Now, the beauty for you and me is that God did give us. He did give us authority here on this earth. If you read the book of Genesis, he gave us dominion over all things. He gave us the ability to manage, to steward everything on this earth. He sustains it, we manage it. So it says he sustains all things. It's as if the Epicureans and the Stoics had reduced God to a household pet. A number of years ago, and maybe it circulates here and there, there was a meme about dogs and cats and sort of their understanding of deity. So dogs, being the loyal friends they are, Wonderful pets think, oh, my owner feeds me, bathes me, takes me out, gives me a bed. He or she must be God. And then there's cats. Oh, this person feeds me, bathes, well, I don't know if we bathe cats. That's maybe a dangerous endeavor takes care of me, lets me come in and out, cleans up after me, does all these things. Oh, I must be a god. <laughs> that's, that's the stoic and Epicurean philosophy rolled into one right there. Like the perspective here, that, that's what Paul is saying is you, you've reduced the creator of all things to a household pet that somehow... Our responsibility is to appease him and to, to coax him into engaging in our lives. 
And Paul is telling them God is not dependent on you. He's not dependent on humanity. Because God not only created all things, sustains all things, he rules over all things. He, Paul calls back to the order of creation that since he created all mankind, he set everything into place by his creative hand. He established nations. He established time periods. It was God who did that. He rules over all things. And then Paul does something that you and I should, should take a lesson from. Paul uses this time as he speaks about God ruling over all things. He's talking about God being the ruler of all, putting time in place, setting nations' boundaries, creating mankind. What does he do? He quotes two philosophers from their era, one from the Isle of Crete, the other one from Paul's own hometown. When he says, in him we live and move and have our being. And then, for we are indeed his offspring. Those are the two quotes from modern day poets of the era to help prove his point. And so you and I need to pay attention to, to cultural issues, to, to educational issues. When you and I have discussions with other people about things of faith, know the world around you. It's important. And so he shares that God knows, rules over all things. And, and the beauty of God ruling over all things is that he rules over one creation in a unique way. And that creation is you and me. Though he rules over all creation, God made us, humanity, in his image. And he is our father. In him, we live and move and have our being. We're indeed his offspring. He created us. He is our heavenly father. And our path has been laid out before the foundation of the earth. And as Paul shares all this information, I imagine these Stoics and these Epicureans are like really intrigued because they're like, okay, maybe there is this like one big God and all the rest of these guys, who knows? But the point is not that we would appease him, not that we would try to coax him into a relationship. No, that we would actually take refuge in him. That we would respond to him in love because he is the one who sustains us. And that God did all of this, all of his creative power so that you and I would find him. All that God has created is so that you and I would actually find him. We would seek him and we would find him because he created us to pursue him. And so how could we then turn around and carve him into a little statue? doesn't make any sense. And today, I would argue that our idols are not like the ancient Greek idols. We don't have a big statue of Zeus in your backyard, at least I hope you don't. You know, we, we, we don't have Ares and Poseidon and all these guys, you know, we don't have those. No, we have different idols today. We have different things that actually distract us from our creator. We have different things. And for everyone, that's different. For, for some of you, it's this little screen that shows up here. And if we looked at your phone today, it would show that you were on TikTok for 
26 hours in the 24-hour day. For, for some of you, it would be your workplace and, and your achievement in the business world would be your idol. For some of you, it would be your children are your idol because you are confident they're the next Derek Jeter or Djokovic since the Australian Open is going on right now. If you don't know who that is, shame on you. Um, but, but we've made our kids our idols. Our idols look different today. But Paul is telling these Athenians for the first time and us for the millionth time that God's creative power culminates with you and me because we're made in his image. He's our father and he longs for us to seek him and he's made a way not just for us to seek him but to actually find him. It's not mysterious. It's not some game that he's playing with us. No, he, he's come to earth in the form of a man named Jesus to live a life of perfection that we would put our trust and our faith in so that we could have eternity with him. And what Paul is telling these philosophers is that all of your goofiness in the past, God's overlooked. All of your idolatry, all of your wayward ways, all the things that you've put in front of God, he's overlooked in his grace and his kindness. But there's still a day fixed in time that he reminds them and reminds us that though God is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, that he created us in his image, God is the judge of all things. And there is an appointed day, time, and there's an appointed man. His name is Jesus, the Son of Man. This passage that Paul is talking about here at the, the last section here in verses 31 and beyond it is kind of a, a uh, taking Daniel chapter 7 and moving it uh, to the modern time, that there's this one, the Son of Man, that God has chosen, that his judgment will go through. All judgment will go through the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you and I stand before God, the question will be, what did you do with Jesus, the Son of Man? And that's Paul's point. Because that man, Jesus, lived a life we could not live, but more importantly, he died and resurrected to offer us hope that we did not have as payment for the ignorance that we lived. And at that point, when he says he was resurrected from the dead, about a third of the group said, ha, thank you very much, have a nice day, we're out. You are a babbler. You are a crazy person. Because they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they just tuned him out. They turned him off. They said, thank you. Have a nice day. We're heading back down the hill. And that's what's going to happen to you. To some of the people that you share the truth of Jesus Christ with. You're going to get to a point 
in that account of who Jesus is and what it means to follow Christ. And they're going to say, thank you very much. Have a nice day. That's crazy talk. And they're going to walk away. And there's going to be some others like these others here said, hey, wait a minute. That's kind of intriguing. Uh, I need you to tell me more. And so we're going to hang out with you because we want to hear from you again about this. And they're going to want to get your phone number. And they're going to talk to you. And they're going to have lunch or coffee or Dr. Pepper or whatever it is. And they're going to have a discussion with you and learn about what does it mean to actually follow Jesus Christ. And then there are others who will say, hey, I got it. Man, this is amazing truth. And and I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And they're going to be like these folks that follow Paul down the hill. And they're going to trust in Christ and believe on his name. And so the challenge, I think, for us as we look at Paul, because I think sometimes we read the scripture and we think, man, that Paul's an awesome dude. He wrote half the New Testament, like speaks in front of thousands of people, blah, blah, blah. I can't do that. You're right. Most of us can't do that. But what you can do is share the very simple truth that he says over and over and over again in his writings. If you read the New Testament, It's the same message to the church and to the pagan. Same message. Jesus, the God-man who came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death. That's the message of Paul all the time, every time. And if that message is not true, let's go home and grab lunch, not so early today, but let's get lunch. Because it's foolishness if that's not true. That's his message over and over and over again. And guess who has that message today? You and me. And so I want to encourage you as we think about how we've been placed uniquely in the 21st century in Southeast Houston, in the middle of a world full of idols. We even have a TV show with it in the title, right, for 20 some odd years. Full of idols. We have the hope that they need. We have the truth that they need. And that truth is named Jesus. Will you pray with me?